Howdy folks, Mackenzie Taylor here, Senior Editor of The Texan. This week on our weekly Roundup podcast, more discussion surrounding election integrity legislation rocks the Texas House and Senate, and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick blasts big business while Governor Abbott declines a first pitch over corporate objection to such proposals, a bill to make Texas a Second Amendment sanctuary makes progress, the governor takes a jab at vaccine passports, legislators discuss whether college athletes should take home endorsement money, COVID numbers remain steady post mask mandate rescission, the Biden administration considers resuming border wall construction, the Texas Senate passes its version of the state budget, a Houston synagogue sues the city arguing unfair enforcement of land use laws, and a statewide elected official sets the stage for a challenge against Attorney General Ken Paxton. Thanks for listening, folks, and enjoy the rundown. Howdy folks, Mackenzie Taylor here with Daniel Friend, Isaiah Mitchell, Hayden Sparks, and Brad Johnson. We're coming off quite a March Madness weekend. And was it a weekend? That was earlier this week. I don't know Monday. what day it is. It was Monday. Yes. And Daniel as our, you know, Second. as our token. Well, yes, of course, also yeah. over the weekend. But we're talking specifically about where Baylor won. Um, but Daniel, as our token Austin reporter, Baylor fan, you know, We'll talk about this later in the podcast, mm-hmm. but how are you feeling? Come on, I am win. feeling high and mighty, <laughs> proud. Yeah, proud of my bears. Yeah, proud of your bears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we'll get in the, into the intricacies of this, and you know Daniel's long history as a as a Baylor. Fan. Yes, yeah, very long. So stick around for that. But in the meantime, we're going to pivot to Hayden. Hayden, we've talked a lot about different election integrity proposals that have come through both the House and the Senate. Walk us through the finality of the hearing that went down last week. Well, the most recent hearing was this morning, and they reported favorably out of the committee House Bill 6, which is the Texas Election Integrity Protection Act of 2021 by Briscoe Kane, a Republican from Deer Park, and a slew of other co-authors. Kane's legislation has been dubbed by social media commentators as voter suppression legislation, but supporters believe it is necessary to make sure all votes are legitimate and it would give more protection for poll watchers. The bill would also prioritize voter fraud claims in Texas courts, as well as increasing criminal penalties and adding additional criminal offenses for certain election violations including a prohibition on unsolicited mail ballot applications and paid vote harvesting. It would also require uh, more detailed records of people who assist voters and would tighten up other laws pertaining to the transfer of ballots, the transfer of electronic information relating to ballots. And it is a really a not necessarily a comprehensive reform of the election code, but it does add in a lot of new provisions in election law to govern elections in Texas following probably the most contentious presidential election in history, as well as widespread suspicion among mostly uh, right of center voters that last year's election was less than legitimate. So that that legislation has been passed favorably out of committee after some pretty, uh, pretty eye-opening testimony by the Texas Attorney General's office last week. Yeah, tell us more about that. I think that was potentially the more one of the more noteworthy, um, you know, testimonies during that committee hearing. Um, you know, walk us through what was said. Well, a member of the Texas Attorney General's office 
the election fraud unit of the Texas Attorney General's office appeared. His name was Jonathan White, and he testified that election fraud prosecutions are, in fact, at an all-time high since the unit has been established, higher than our historical average by a long shot, he said. There are currently 510 alleged election offenses pending against 43 defendants. Now, to put that in perspective, McKenzie, there have been 534 offenses prosecuted successfully against 155 individuals since the unit started 16 years ago. So that is 96% of the total offenses that have been resolved are currently pending uh, the same, the 96% of that number are currently pending against 43 defendants. So you have this uptick in voter fraud prosecutions. But to put that in perspective, there were 11.3 million votes cast in the presidential election last year. So that number is really dwarfed in comparison by the number of votes. Also, the attorney general's office did not testify that voter fraud and election offenses are a a systematic or a widespread problem. He said that he's not going to testify that the system is that broken. However, it's also important to remember that local races can be considerably closer than a statewide race. And races can be decided by only a handful of votes, which means that election fraud can be um, more pernicious on the local level. And the example that I always think of is the case in 2017 in the Virginia House of Delegates race. Now, this didn't happen in Texas, obviously, but the Virginia House of Delegates is much like the Texas House, where the balance of power in the whole state was decided by one vote in one race in the House of Delegates. And not only was that seat decided, but the balance of power in the chamber was decided. And if that one vote had gone a different way, then the Democrats would have had control in or there would have been a tie in the chamber rather than the Republicans having control. So that's kind of a mathematical a mathematical rarity, but additional arguments that have been presented in favor of this legislation is that undetected fraud is is not prosecuted. So prosecuted offenses are not necessarily a reliable indicator of how much fraud is occurring. And one fraud offense can also involve multiple votes and multiple schemes. So just because 510 offenses doesn't necessarily mean 510 votes. So those are some of the arguments that have been presented for and against HB6. And now we'll see how that plays out on the Texas House floor. Yeah. And we'll, you know, be awaiting to see when that hearing will happen on the House floor. I'm sure it will be quite a colorful day when that when that piece of legislation comes to the floor. Uh, Let's keep talking about election integrity legislation. Let's talk about the Senate and the lieutenant governor specifically. Daniel, something quite spicy this week happened at a press conference. Just some comments from the lieutenant governor. Walk us through what happened. Yes, so this is also kind of related to those election bills that are going through. There's the the House one, HB6, and then you also have the one in the Senate, which is SB7. Um, SB7 uh, has a lot of similar kind of policies in it as HB6, some some different ones. uh, But broadly, it follows the same line of trying to uh, kind of tamp down on these uh, possible routes of voter fraud. Um, So it's really kind of an election security bill that Republicans are pushing for. Certainly not the first uh, election bill that Republicans have pushed for um, in the past. Uh, You know, in the past three sessions, uh, there have been uh, election legislation prioritized by Republicans, uh, by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. And uh, 
quite frequently there is opposition to these bills from Democrats who point to this uh, and claim that uh, these types of bills are voter suppression, that it will discourage people from participating in uh, the voting process. And so Dan Patrick's press conference on Tuesday uh, was really kind of in response to these claims of voter suppression, and he was just essentially trying to refute this, the the idea that uh, the bill is going to dissuade people from voting. Um, and so, you know, one of the big points that he brought up was uh, the similar claims uh, that were made surrounding a voter ID law in 2011 uh, when Democrats were in opposition to that. And uh, since then, if you look back at the, the records of voting, there has been a, a much, much more much larger increase in the number of people who are actually going out to the polls and voting as far as turnout. And then also the number of people who are registered to vote. Um, we are seeing, you know, records break consistently, uh, in different elections. And so, you know, if you, if you look at the, the policy changes made with that voter ID law and compare it to the, the policy changes in SB seven, you know, those voter ID laws were much more significant in the things that they were changing. A lot of the things that are changing in SB seven are, um, policies that were kind of um, accepted by the state uh, generally, but it wasn't actually put necessarily codified as clear in law. So, you know, in in the last election, we saw Harris County make several uh, different uh, actions to try and expand the people who were voting. So uh, you had the um, voting administrator, Chris Holland. I forget the, the proper title. I think it's the county elec- elections administrator. Yes. And he was the interim at the time. Yeah. Yes. And he sent out, <clears throat> or he was planning on sending out uh, mass mail ballot applications or kind of soliciting people to get these uh, mail ballot applications. And they also experimented with some with drive through vote voting and 24-hour voting. And so this bill would you know, one of the things that it would do among some other things, it would basically put it in code and say that local uh, election agencies can't have that be in law. Um, so that is, you know, it, it's not as wide sweeping as, um, other proposals yes. previously. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Now, this is one thing that we've heard a lot about is different corporations, both, you know, Texas-based and otherwise coming out and saying, "Hey, we're not going to do business in Texas if this is what, you know, the Republicans are going to be proposing in the in the House and the Senate." Walk us through, you know, specifically American Airlines, there's been controversy about that. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it previously, but a lot of what Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said during this press conference related to, you know, these kinds of companies and specifically American Airlines. Mm-hmm. Give us a rundown of specifically what was said and, you know, the controversy surrounding American Airlines. Yeah, so a number of companies have come out against this, but the one that uh, Dan Patrick really focused on and honed in on was American Airlines. Um, and this is probably one of the, the first companies in Texas that I think came out uh, in opposition to the bill. And uh, shortly before they came out in opposition to the bill, Dan Patrick said that uh, some of their uh, legislative workers, officials, uh, contacted his office and uh, told him beforehand that uh, this their opposition, they were going to come out in opposition to the bill, and they he, Patrick said that they said uh, it wasn't personal in any way, um, and that you know, they, were, they were doing this you know, just as a, a policy standpoint. Uh, but Patrick says that he did take it personally because essentially what the statement was, was that these, uh, this election bill is, you know, races targeting minorities to uh, suppress them from voting. And 
Patrick says, no, that's not what this bill is doing. Uh, you know, that's essentially calling him and all the 18 Republicans in the Senate who voted for it racists. Uh, and another thing that he said, emphasized during the call or about the call was that the uh, officials had not actually read the bill mm-hmm. and that the CEO of American Airlines had not read the bill. And so Dan Patrick said, uh, quote, you have a right to your opinion, but read the damn bill. <laughs> uh, so that kind of tells you his his sentiment. It was very kind of a, a passionate um, press conference. Yeah, he was he very, was you know, very animated the whole yes. time. Yes, perturbed. Yes. Very uh, lively. You know, I think <clears throat> I went back to uh, Brad and I went to another press conference with him a little bit ago with the, the ERCOT stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was... Yeah, I think there were some points where he was he was a little bit perturbed about different things, but certainly firm but, about his stance. Yeah, but he was much more calm in that. Yeah. This he was he was mad. Um, he was very mad at the way that uh, businesses and Democrats have labeled this bill as voter suppression. Um, so yeah, I like it. So now, in terms of you know, because there's this complicated relationship between the state and these big companies. Mm-hmm. Um, is there going to be any pushback against these companies going forward just in terms of, you know, tax incentives or those kinds of things? Mm. It's unlikely that we'll see that. Uh, now, Dan Patrick was very, very adamant about uh, businesses not getting involved in politics. Um, you know, he, he chided them uh, for different things. And he said that these companies keep meddling in issues that are completely unrelated to their business. You know, election laws don't affect uh, American Airlines whatsoever, you know? Um, and so he says, you know, by doing this, it's going to hurt the companies themselves. They're going to turn off 50% of their voters um, or customers rather. Uh, but um, when asked if he was going to kind of retaliate with cutting tax incentives or, you know, subsidies for these corporations, all these incentives that Texas has to, to get businesses to come to Texas and set up shop here. He said, uh, this isn't quid pro quo. We don't punish businesses for disagreeing with us. Um, so it looks like, um, you know, those, those policies to, um, kind of incentivize businesses to come to Texas and, you know, the, lots of Republicans like Dan Patrick, Greg Abbott, they, they emphasize this need for, for jobs in the state and wanting to have more companies come here. Uh, that's something that they touted a lot. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how they, they walk that line going forward when you have all these companies who uh, want to have their cake and eat it too and come to Texas and get involved in, in politics that go contrary to the other policies uh, of these Republican leaders. And so, um, you know, there's not there might from from the press conference, there's not going to be pushback as far as tax incentives go. Right. There was no threat made necessarily. It was just like, hey, stay out of your stay out of things that don't pertain to you. It's kind of the attitude. Um, Well, Daniel, thank you for covering that for us. And it's interesting too to watch just the narratives play out because in light and even though these proposals maybe aren't as heavy handed as previous proposals in terms of election security or reform, you know, in light of the 2020 election and the narratives that came out of of november in terms of you know hey election fraud um you know concerns from folks about that on on the right and the left saying there was no fraud you know these kinds of bills are going to be politically um charged certainly um we're gonna stick on this topic just tangentially so um brad the governor said hey you know usually 
uh, he goes in and does some sort of first pitch kind of situation. Or not usually, but he's done it in the past mm-hmm. um, for the Rangers with the, you know, That's MLB. pretty frequently. Yeah, yeah, with the MLB coming up and saying, hey, it's time. I know you and Phil, specifically Phil Burton, are uh, – our founder's husband are very excited about these developments, but with Abbott specifically baseball season generally. Yes. Yes. Just generally speaking, just yes. baseball period America's pastime. Um, but you know, something this week was a political flashpoint. Mm-hmm. Walk us through what happened. Yeah. So like you mentioned, governor Abbott um, has before and was set again to throw out the first pitch at the Texas Rangers home opener that was set for Monday. And um, it wasn't the beginning of the season because the Rangers had a an away series uh, last week. But um, this was the first time they were going to uh, play at their new home field or their their field that was built just before last season, which fans were not a part of um, because of COVID. And it got delayed. But Global Life Field, the governor was set to throw out the first pitch alongside various um, uh, they call them frontline heroes, you know, uh, nurses. I think there were a few police officers. Um, teachers were included in that. And that was going to be the ceremony. Now, after what the what Major League Baseball did last week, where they moved um, the All-Star game that was set to happen in Atlanta with at the Braves Stadium, they moved it out of there eventually to Colorado, to Denver. And uh, it was kind of in a protest against the election reform bill that had just passed and been signed by the governor there in Georgia. And it's very similar, uh, not exactly the same legislation, but uh, certainly similar to what Texas is trying to do right now. There's multiple bills in the works in the legislature at the moment for that. And Governor Abbott, like uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, took issue with the way um, these corporations were framing the bill. Uh, both in Georgia and the prospective Texas bills. Um, And so not as a protest against the Rangers, um, but against Major League Baseball, Governor Abbott declined his appearance. And his statement was, I was looking forward to throwing out the first pitch until Major League Baseball adopted what has turned out to be a false narrative about the election law reforms in Georgia. And based on that false narrative, move the MLB All-Star Game from Atlanta. It is shameful that America's pastime is not only being influenced by partisan political politics, but also perpetuating false political narratives. This decision does not diminish the deep respect I have for the Texas Rangers baseball organization, which is outstanding from top to bottom. I wish the team great success this season. And that last part is, you know, an important um, point. You know, it's not the teams that made this decision. It was the league itself. So in terms of Texas's legislation, where specifically did Abbott draw the line, you know, there? What did he mention? What kind of relation is there between this bill and, and Texas's? He, there was no direct um, statement about that, but he did uh, take note of, you know, various other corporations like American Air that Dan- Daniel talked about um, that have been, you know, pushing whatever narrative they have been about this. And he took issue with that just as he did with, um, with the major league baseballs, but with the baseball aspect, it's more of, (laughs) this is clearly um, something that could have happened to Texas had they, you know, hosted the all-star game this year or were they set to because of the legislation that Abbott is supportive of Um, not only that, but is in his emergency item list. Um, You know, it's, it's drawing a a firm line there and um, you know, trying to, it's a, 
rhetorical defense, essentially, of what Texas is working on right now in advance of any potential criticism from Major League Baseball. Certainly. So the groundwork is being set at this point. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. Daniel, we're coming back to you. The governor has been also supportive of a particular Second Amendment sanctuary bill that has made progress this last week. Give us an update. Yes, so the uh, Second Amendment sanctuary is this idea that uh, a governmental entity uh, will either pledge to not enforce or prohibit the enforcement of unconstitutional firearms enacted at a higher level. Uh, We've seen this largely at county levels, uh, kind of before the pandemic began was really when it um, spread across Texas and I think over 70 counties uh, passed some sort of resolution that was uh, basically county commissioners courts pledging not to enforce any unconstitutional firearm laws if they're passed by the the state or federal government. Um, And so... Earlier this year, Governor Greg Abbott said that he wants Texas as a whole to become a Second Amendment sanctuary state. Um, And there's been different pieces of legislation that would um, basically turn Texas into such a Second Amendment sanctuary where the the state and all the local government entities would be prohibited from enforcing uh, new firearm laws by the federal government. Got it. So what kind of proposals is the legislature looking at now that we're in session? So there's two big ones that are being looked at. Uh, The first one was just approved by the House State Affairs Committee this week, uh, and that is from Representative Justin Holland. And essentially what that bill would do, um, uh, both of these bills would do the same thing as uh, prohibiting – state agencies, local law enforcement, you know, Harris County officials couldn't be able to enforce any new federal firearm laws uh, that would be enacted. uh, And that would be um, retroactive from uh, January 19th of this year. So when the Biden administration came in, um, any any new laws uh, enacted, any new gun laws enacted under that administration uh, that are not on the books in Texas uh, would be prohibited from being enforced. Now, in the Texas Senate, uh, they're looking – They it was actually heard on Thursday um, a bill from uh, Senator Bob Hall, and uh, it was actually originally filed in the House in, I think, 2013 by Representative Steve Toth, uh, which Governor Greg Abbott helped write uh, when he was attorney general then. Uh, and this is the Texas Firearm Protection Act. And it would basically do the same thing. I think it'd be a little bit more forceful um, in imposing penalties directly on individuals who do enforce these types of laws. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how the House and Senate uh, go about that. Back in 2013, the Texas Firearm Protection Act did pass the House in a 100-member vote. Uh, So two-thirds of the the chamber voted for it. Um, But it didn't ever get brought to the Senate. So... Um, Now that these are both being heard in the House and the Senate, um, it'll be interesting to see which version might make it through uh, the furthest and uh, which could potentially be signed by the governor. And the governor has indicated that he wants to sign such a bill. Got it. So in terms of enforcement, I mean, how would this actually work? Do these bills have teeth to be able to enforce these kinds of ideas? Yeah. So those resolutions that I talked about that had been passed at the county level uh, really have not uh, had much teeth to it. It's basically just the county commissioner's court saying, we're not going to do this. Um, now that, so for the most part, they have been very uh, symbolic. Now it's basically just saying the sheriff is coming through and like, we're not going to waste our time doing this. Um, so it, it has some relative action, but I think the the bills that are in the, the legislature right now are uh, going to have a little bit more of effect if they're passed uh, because this is basically tie the hands of 
um, these large urban counties, which are probably more likely to want to enforce these new gun uh, restrictions, uh, whether it be mandatory buybacks, gun gun confiscation programs, or uh, background checks, requiring background checks for private sellers, um, and different things like that. Uh, so in the case that a local entity tries to do that, this would prohibit them from doing that. It would uh, open up the avenue for these cases to be brought to the courts and basically stop those policies from being uh, enforced. Got it. Thank you for covering that for us, Daniel. Brad, we're going to go to you. We've seen a lot of chatter at the federal level about vaccine passports. This week, Governor Abbott came out with a move of his own relating to that. What are the details? Yeah, so he issued an executive order this week prohibiting the use of vaccine passports. Now, it's more complicated than that, naturally. Um, it is a <laughs> prohibition on government entities requiring them for people to access you know, those buildings and um, private businesses that benefit from taxpayer funds in some way. Uh, as a condition of those funds being issued, they c- those places cannot require vaccine proof of vaccination essentially uh vaccine passports is the is the term that has been popularized but it's you know it's not like it, it's not just wouldn't just be a passport you leaving the country and you know you'd have to show it to enter a store theoretically that's the you know the realistic application of it um but governor abbott uh, prohibited with his ex- executive order the issuance of those now private businesses that do not receive uh political or uh, public funds are not part of that. They were not mentioned in the order. So um, unless something changes, they would be able to, um, to do that. Now there are some that argue that's people um, choosing to do with their property, what they want. Um, Other people argue that this is not something that anyone should be doing. And therefore there's the role of the government to prohibit it. Um, But Abbott's statement when he issued this, he said every day Texans are returning to normal life as more people get the safe and effective COVID-19 vaccine. But as I've said all along, these vaccines are always voluntary and never forced. Government should not require any Texan to show proof of vaccination and reveal private health information just to go about their daily lives. So in terms of Florida's order, you know, we've seen a lot of comparison between Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida and, you know, Abbott here in Texas. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of chatter about the, you know, the two different approaches these governors took. What's the difference, the primary difference? Well, the main difference is that... Uh, DeSantis's order also prohibited it for businesses writ large, uh, you know, whether they receive public funding or not. So um, that's the the main difference. And um, obviously, the uh, those two public officials are constantly having distinctions drawn between them because of the 2024 presidential implications. Both <laughs> seem to be uh, at the very least interested, if not already contenders in in that race. And um, you know, that'll just continue to bubble up as we get closer to the election. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I'm not aware of any, any places in Texas right now that, you know, fitting that carve out for Abbott that do require vaccination proof, um, at the moment. So maybe it's just a, a distinction without a difference, um, you know, in the practical applicability of this. Um, but it's certainly something that could come into play. 
Certainly. Thanks for, you know, making sure we have all the information on that. Isaiah, we're coming to you. Um, I know it's been a while since we, since we got to you. Uh, Let's talk about, (laughs) um, let's talk college athlete endorsements, sponsorships, all that jazz. Always a hot topic um, with a lot of hot takes, but there was a, you know, specific, piece of legislation discussed in the texas senate this week that would deal specifically with this issue what is the current law regarding athlete endorsements in college here in texas so right now in texas as in most states college athletes cannot do paid endorsements there are six states that have passed laws to allow them and california naturally took a lot of the press when they passed theirs called the fair pay to play act in 2019 and so the controversy controversy is that on one hand the schools make all kinds of money off their athletic programs and the athletes never get a dime of that in the, in the states where, you know, where that's prohibited. On the other hand, schools of profitable athletic programs have good athletes that often get scholarships to attend, and a lot of people see that as pay. That's your compensation is, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting to go to school for free for right. your athletic ability. The NCAA has opposed legislation like this to allow paid endorsements for college athletes at the state level because they say it'll create this regulatory patchwork that'll tilt the playing field to better-funded schools and better-funded states where potential athletes can make more money. And so um, that will just, you know, roll all of the good athletes or the better athletes to the better, more well-funded schools and bigger states. And it'll be harder for smaller schools or states that don't have these kinds of laws to compete. Yeah, certainly. So walk us through, this is a bill filed by Senator Brandon Creighton. Walk us through his proposal. So his bill would prohibit colleges or universities from adopting rules that forbid athletes from making money off their own name and likeness. And um, interestingly, he admitted that he opposed this idea in the past before learning more about it. He pitched it as a way for Texas's big schools like UT and A&M, whose athletic directors were there as testifiers, to better attract students. And that kind of became a source of contention at the meeting. UT's athletic director, Chris Del Conte, they're still hashing it. That's what committees are for. They're hashing out the legislation in the idea stage. Um, both athletic directors supported it, but Del Cane said that he wanted to keep the focus at the individual granular level and not see the bill as what he called a recruiting inducement to where, um, you know, the motive for lawmakers or schools is to, to pass this bill so that UT and A&M can just rake in the good athletes because, um, like as Senator West brought up in the meeting, that could be a potential conflict with the bill text itself. Um, as he put it, West Uh, He supported the bill very avowedly, but said, if indeed the purpose of the bill is to recruit students to attend the university to play, then by using the bill to do that, it would be illegal as the bill is drafted. And so Del Conte, West, um, both of them wanted to see the bill reorganized and tweaked somewhat to a more individual standard that's just saying athletes have the right to profit off their own names and their own likenesses. And if people are making money off of that, then that money should go to the athlete. Got it. So it's more endorsement based than, you know, other proposals we've seen. Um, Now, a lot of famous athletes have a lot to say about these kinds of proposals. What, you know, give us kind of the argument for and against. Sure. So just to pull from, from two big ones, Tim Tebow, former NFL quarterback and current minor leaguer opposes it. And LeBron James uh, basketball store supports it. So LeBron James, uh, it should be noted, went straight to the NBA without a collegiate career. And he says that he made that skip because it just wouldn't have made fiscal sense for him and his family growing up. He said, I understand what those kids are going through. I feel for those kids. 
And this was all in 2019 after California passed their version of law. That's where all these quotes come from. He said, me and my mom, we didn't have anything. We wouldn't have been able to benefit at all from going to college. The university would have been able to capitalize on everything. So on the other side, we've got Tim Tebow opposing it because, in his words, he thinks that college sports should be about the university and about the team, and he doesn't want to see collegiate sports moving towards what the NFL looks like today. So in his words, he said, when I was at the University of Florida, I think my jersey was one of the top selling jerseys around the world. It was like Kobe, LeBron, and I was right behind them, and I didn't make a dollar from it, but nor did I want to. I know we live in a selfish culture where it's all about us. We're just adding and piling it onto that, where it changes what's special about college football. We turn it into the NFL where who has the most money, that's where you go. Good stuff. Isaiah, thanks for covering that for us. Daniel, let's talk COVID numbers. In the, in the last few weeks, we've seen a lot of movement in terms of statistics, specifically in light of the mask mandate that was lifted um, just about a month ago. I think a month ago, yes, almost on the dot. Um what are you know? What are the numbers looking like now that that mandate has been lifted? I believe March second was the day that Governor Abbott announced that he was going to be uh, pulling back on his his mandates and his all his lockdown to uh, opening everything up to one hundred percent capacity. And uh, that was scheduled and happened on March tenth. Uh, was when that went into effect, and you know, in that week in between, you heard lots of outcry from uh, many different people, lots of Democrats in Texas, Beto O'Rourke, the chair of the Democratic Party, even President Biden, come out against uh, this policy from Governor Abbott, saying that this was way too early, that this was going to be essentially signing a death warrant for lots of Texans. And um, what we've seen is that that has not turned out to be the case as the COVID numbers, both the hospitalizations and the cases, um, all of the, the trend lines are continuing in a downward trend. Um, so the you know average hospitalizations was um, a little less than 5,000 uh, when, when that order went into effect. And then now it's gone down another 33%. So it's just continuing to go down um, now. Keep in mind, you know, that the hospitalizations were already going down. Uh, they really reached a, a peak in the probably about early January was when we saw the high of hospitalizations and cases in Texas. And then things started to go down and things just continued going down. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this is determined or success or failure on this front is often determined by how this compares to other states numbers. Now, every state's different. The response mm. is different. But in terms of, you know, what we can actually see and compare, uh, you know, how does Texas compare to other states numerically? Yeah. So um, the, I think we've we've all seen Republican states and Democratic states taken two different extremes. So you have Republican states, um, you know, at one end with with states like South Dakota and Florida taking much more lax precautions, whereas you have other states like Michigan and California that have taken much more strict uh, precautions. And I think these latest numbers are showing that, um, you know, with or without those precautions are really not um, with, with those mandates or without them really doesn't affect the trend lines of the numbers as much as people like to believe. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't do anything. Uh, I think the jury is still out on that. Um, but by and large, um, it, it really doesn't seem to have as big of an effect because as Texas numbers are going down right now, after we took out the mask mandate, the cases in Michigan and uh, kind of in New York, New York too, some other northeast northeast states like that, um, you, you're seeing the numbers go back up. 
you know, they had this winter surge, it went down, and now those cases are starting to go back up again, even though they still have those lockdown policies in place, even though they still have the mask mandate. Um, now, that's not all Democratic states that are like that. You also have California as an example, um, where the cases are continuing to go down, and you haven't seen an uptick. It's, it's very similar to Texas. And I think, uh, and this is something that I really haven't seen anybody talking about. Uh, granted, I haven't been following COVID numbers as much as I was last summer, but um, <laughs> that was almost your full-time job last summer. Yeah, yeah, we well, were um, dealing with a lot of that on your plate. So, you know, with the, with the legislative session, I've been paying much more attention to that. But something that I still haven't seen really anybody talk about is, uh, you know, when you look back at cases last summer, you saw a rise in cases in Texas and California. Michigan didn't have that summer surge. They didn't have a, a wave of cases there. They saw a, a wave of cases come in like November, December in, in this winter surge. Um, and But before then, they really didn't have uh, much of an uptick. Um, so there were, I think, in Michigan, it's probably safe to say that there were a lot of fewer people um, who had already had the virus compared to Texas and California. Um, and also in New York, New York didn't have a, a summer surge. Um, now, New York did have one of the, the worst cases in the spring. And, you know, that was talked about quite a lot back in March and April. You know, they had a big surge then, but they didn't have one in the summer. And so, um, you know, with, with New York, you, you saw the cases uh, go up in the spring. They came down, no surge in the summer. Then you saw a surge in the winter. And then stuff started coming down again. And then it picked back up just a little bit um, these past few months. And now it's going down again. So, you know, I think it's kind of reflective of the really more of the herd immunity than, than these policies. And so as, you know, vaccinations continue, um, I think we're going to see far, far fewer cases than we have. Um, and, you know, the, these policies at this point are just, I, I don't know if you want to call them the, the cherry on top or trying to stop these cases, but it's, it's largely based on, um, you know, who's had the virus already, where, where the cases have been. Awesome, Daniel. Thank you so much. So one quick question before we move on to the next segment. I want to know, you know, in terms of lawmaker response since the since the mask mandate was lifted, have we seen much conversation about it from legislators and committee hearings on the floor, on social media? Has that quieted down largely? Where are we at in terms of the political discussion? I think the political discussion has really quieted down for the most part. Now, you're still seeing it uh, play out somewhat in the, the legislature with the legislative the House and the Senate have their own mask mandates still in place. So you're seeing it talked about some there. Uh, but by and large, everybody has kind of stopped talking about it. Um, and I think we'll continue to see this. I think uh, like many things in the news cycle, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, the George Floyd protests one week and then two weeks later as cases go up, it's back on COVID. Right. And I think as the cases go down, it's in Texas, it's continuing to go down um, with not really a, a sign of any, any new surge coming. And so, you know, that being the case, I think, you know, as we start seeing more stuff on, on these election bills on, um, I'm sure there, there'll be some more gun legislation, uh, President Biden just made some executive orders regarding that on Thursday. Um, we're going to see more talk about other things and people's focus is shifting somewhere else. Awesome. Thank you for that. Hayden, we're going to come to you with some federal news. The president, President Biden this week said some controversial things about the border wall. Um, give us an update on, on where we're at with that. Well, as y'all know, the border wall has been a little bit controversial, just a touch. <laughs> and President Biden, on his first day in office, decided to stop construction of the security barrier or the security system. And I say system because it is 
not just a wall. It is also technology and surveillance and other components, things that I am not an expert in, that (laughs) contribute to securing the border. And what occurred this week is the Washington Times reported that Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is signaling that the department may restart construction on at least portions of the security barrier, what he referred to as the gaps in the security barrier, because really this was a total pause on border construction. So the times reported that there was a a communication directed toward employees of immigration and customs enforcement that indicated they were mulling options to finish construction on at least a portion of the project. Got it. So in terms of, you know, let's talk about specifically approval of the Biden administration's handling of the border since he, you know, since President Biden took office. Some polling's come out about that, right? And folks are constantly checking in. The border's becoming increasingly, you know, hot topic here in the U.S. Where are we at in terms of approval for for the response? Well, people are worried, to put it simply, 55% of Americans, not Texans, but Americans disapprove of the president's handling of border security, according to an Associated Press University of Chicago poll. And if you want to check out that poll, you can head to the Texan.news and it is in the article, Biden administration may resume border wall construction after halting progress on first day in office. Check out that article, you can see the poll. But in addition, uh, 56% disapprove of his handling of immigration, to distinguish that from border security. Yeah. And ironically, 55% approve of his foreign policy, while only 43% disapprove. And I say ironically, because foreign policy and immigration really do go hand in hand. Yeah. Because Central American countries, well, I say Central America, foreign countries Mm -hmm. uh, are... The, the decisions made in other countries and conditions in other countries, according to Homeland Security, uh, significantly contributes to illegal immigration and human suffering uh, elsewhere uh, across the globe. That causes people to come to the United States because we are a better place to live uh, than Central America. So while Biden is getting higher marks on pretty much every other issue, immigration and border security is the one issue where people are worried. And as it relates to illegal immigration itself, 45% of Americans are extremely or very concerned and 27% are moderately concerned. Only 26% said in this poll that they were not at all concerned. And this poll has a margin of error. Pardon me while I check my notes of 3.6 percentage points, give or take. So uh, more than two thirds of the country is worried about illegal immigration as the, is the, is the takeaway takeaway from that. And Biden is possibly tempering his position on the border wall in view of those numbers, because the cease and desist on the border wall was very much a, a political decision that I, I think was fueled by uh, a political mandate from his base, just like Trump's zero tolerance policy was a political decision, maybe less of a tactical decision and and more of a political decision. Campaign promise, those kinds of things. Yeah. And so the, uh, any candidate wants to show that they're delivering on their campaign promises, but they, after discussing with border patrol officials and seeing these numbers, there may be a new mandate and that is to temper their administration's position on border security to be a little bit more assertive. 
Certainly. Hayden, thanks for covering that for us. Brad, one of your beats is the budget. And believe it or not, we are back in the season in which that is a hot topic. The Senate passed their budget. Walk us through the details of that. Yeah. So I think we talked about this last week and nothing much has really changed, but uh, can't hurt to go over it again. So um, especially because it is the, you know, the most important part of every legislative session. And uh, the Senate passed a $250.7 billion budget. Um, You know, a a large portion of that is non-discretionary funding, stuff that they have to finance, like it's uh, entitlements. But $117.9 billion of that is discretionary funding, of which they have a lot of discretion over (laughs) how it is spent. And so um, among that includes um, $3.1 billion for... Um, the, the growth of student enrollment in Texas. Now, as most people know, the, the, the state has a, um, a sizable role in financing uh, public education K through 12. And so, um, you know, every session they adjust their the amount they pay based on uh, student enrollment and how much it grows. And obviously, Texas is a growing state. And so that comes with more students. Another uh, factor of it is $1 billion in continued property tax compression. And, um, you know, that's important. That's a a continuation of what we saw last session, along with the school finance injection. Um, The state uh, uses around $5 billion um, to compress property taxes down at the local level. It's essentially a buyout of the the portion of funding that uh, ISDs have to pay for their you know, their operations. And so it reduces the, the local property tax rates. Um, those are the two, two biggest things right now. It, we're still waiting to see what comes out of the house and they are expected to vote out the budget probably next week. That's what I heard on the, the appropriations committee hearing this week, uh, today being Thursday. And, um, you know, after that, it'll go to the floor and the House will have a long, very long process of trying to amend. There'll be a whole night of it. Um, it's a much longer process than the Senate, uh, which voted this out unanimously this week. And, um, yeah, that's where it sits. Once once those two, uh, once the two houses pass a, a, their own version, it will then go to conference committee and they'll hammer out the differences. Awesome. And we'll go from there. I like it. Thank you, Bradley. Isaiah, we're coming to you. Now, there was a story you wrote this week specifically relating to a Houston synagogue and just some land use you know, action taken there. Walk us through the details of that story and what the lawsuit is about. Sure. So it centers around a synagogue in a Houston residential use neighborhood. And right off the bat, if I misrepresent Jewish theology, Orthodox theology, I I apologize because I don't know much about it. But uh, the congregants of the Hymish Synagogue are suing the city of Houston, claiming that it enforced its laws selectively. Basically, they are bound by their faith to worship within a small geographic zone called an Arab at a place within walking distance of their homes. And they set up shop in a, in a home in a residential use only neighborhood. And they've been there for a little bit over two years. The homeowners association c- confronted them about it and spoke to a rabbi. And after that conversation decided to, to let them, you know, continue worshiping there later that same month uh, over the summer, uh, I believe it was in July, the city confronted them about it and ordered them to shut down and threatened them with fines and other legal action. Uh, the problem is that there are other businesses operating in homes in this neighborhood, including a law firm, a hair salon, and a wig stylist, but those have remained untouched by the city. 
Got it. So in terms of, you know, going forward and just what we're dealing with here, um, why did the city want to shut them down in the first place? Um, that's actually kind of an important question because according to state law and, and federal law too, the city needs a compelling interest to substantially burden the free exercise of religion. So one would think, well, isn't enforcing the law enough, but um, compelling interest would really take the shape more of, um, say, trying to ease traffic in the area. If you have a lot of people walking around in this in this era of to the to the synagogue, then you know the city of Houston might argue that that's that's posing a, a traffic hazard or something like that. That's more of a compelling interest. And um, the term compelling interest comes from uh, the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which echoes um, a similarly named law at the federal level, um, which prevent governments of any kind from burdening the free exercise of religion without you know such a compelling interest. And again, what further muddies the water is that there are other businesses operating in this residential neighborhood that the city has not touched. Got it. Well, Isaiah, thanks for covering that for us. It's quite an interesting situation. We'll continue to monitor it. Brad, we're going to come to you. Um, there was an interesting announcement made this week. An announcement is a strong word, an interesting acknowledgement, rather, yes. that happened this week um, of one statewide elected official saying, hey, I'm open to primarying another statewide elected official. Um, and it's shrouded by all sorts of controversy, all sorts of, um, you know, bribery and abusive office allegations. Walk us through what happened. Yeah. So it was a statement of fact that we all generally knew was the case, but uh, <laughs> finally came out. Of, of the horse's mouth. Yes, it did. Um, George P. Bush, the Texas land commissioner, uh, announced on Mark Davis's radio show, Dallas radio host, on Thursday that he is seriously considering uh, running against running for attorney general, whether that's against Ken Paxton or not, depending on whether he runs again, which all indications show that he will. Um, and in the in the radio spot, uh, Bush he he didn't really focus much on political differences because as he said there aren't many between him and uh ken paxton um and it more he said it'll focus on how the office is run specifically citing the allegations of abuse of of office against ken paxton and um you know it's it it's setting up a a pretty serious clash like it'll be uh, a mo most watched uh episode if with that you know, does to come down the pike. So, um, yeah, another Bush legacy is uh, uh, looking for higher office. <laughs> Potentially advancing. Um, so on that note, I mean, how hard did he hit Paxton in this in this interview? Pretty hard. Um, you know, he, he said we need a top cop that the law enforcement of our great state can confide in and trust in. Um, he mentioned that he spoke to various attorneys general across the, the country that all expressed their embarrassment for um, or of what has been going on in the attorney general's office. Um, he Bush lamented the um, quote, excellent attorneys that, that left um, Paxton's office uh, most of which I think I'll ask Daniel were all of them fired eventually or did any of them one of them left resigned yeah I think so a couple resigned um, mix of resignations kind of and firings yeah. yes uh, and so the spots were vacated <laughs> yes and um, you know there's been a lot of criticism of, of Paxton on that he was actually pressed Paxton himself was pressed on it in uh, appropriations committee hearings or finance committee hearings in the senate and you know his his statement was that yeah we had good lawyers leave, but we've had, we've replaced them with even better lawyers. And so, 
um, you know, he, this is not a new, a new case that has been made and um, Bush appears to be uh, really honing in on it. Yeah. And Paxton's doubling down on his intent to run as well. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think, you know, if I were a betting man, I would say that these two will square off in the 2022 GOP primary for attorney general. And there has certainly been whispers of other candidates, other potential candidates as well. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of statewide races we're dealing with in just yeah. a couple of years. I think um, it'll be interesting to see also, um, you brought up the whistleblowers, uh, how there's currently a whistleblower lawsuit pending. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it could take, you know, potentially a long time to make its way through the courts, um, just through the as different stages of do. appeals. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that the timeline of that case overlaps with this yeah. election over the next two years. Yeah, if if they do run against each other, what comes out during that yeah. during that race? You know, something's going to come yeah, out. Yeah, something will. So um, you know, how serious will it be? Yeah, and timing. It'll all be very yeah. very interesting. Um, well, gentlemen, thank you. Let's pivot to Daniel's favorite topic. Second. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So, Daniel, explain to us your history with this. Um, you know, with this with this famed team now. Yeah, I mean, I have been, we've talked about this on the podcast. Now, we haven't (laughs) been, obviously, last year, college football was a little bit different than previous years. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, we didn't spend much time talking about it uh, on the podcast. But back back in the heyday, when it was Brad and I and Sarah McConnell, we would talk about... All the all the college football stuff, and we each adopted a, a Texas team. Yes, well, you all did. You all adopted a, a Texas team. I was there for all of this. I adopted teams as well. Did you adopt a team? What team did oh you adopt? Oh my gosh, I don't remember, but I was part of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, so thanks for this. Was back in my reporting days. This is unreal. I feel so left out of this conversation. All that to say, what an oversight, Daniel Friend. Oh my. Well, we, that was also we were like circling through like <laughs> who was on way? the podcast. So you weren't. I think you were on there less frequently than. Oh yeah. Certainly than Brad and I. Mm-hmm. So. Mm. Anyways. Anyways. Anyways, y'all adopted teams. <laughs> I didn't have to do that because obviously, as it came out, then I had been a lifelong Baylor fan. <laughs> just with the whole scandal stuff, I hadn't really, you know, publicly come out. Multiple but, scandals. Yes. So. But that was the appropriate time to, you know, come out of the closet, so to speak, and, and uh, <laughs> say that I am. Profess your Baylor fandom. All that to say, it was when, that that was when I really made myself, uh, everybody know how true of a Baylor fan I have been my whole life. Mm. And so just leading up to this moment, um, it was really, I don't even know how, I don't you know did how watch to the game, right? I did watch it. Yeah. From beginning to end. <laughs> it was not a very good game. I didn't think it was a national championship as I was watching it. I had to ask Phil, like, <laughs> is this actually a national championship? <laughs> Did you really ask Phil? That's amazing. Yeah, it was on Slack. Oh, look at um, that. I've got one real quick question. First of all, is Sarah McConnell, who I've never met, is she from Texas? She's absolutely yes. from Texas, Okay, yes. interesting. She's an Aggie. All right. Because I so was going to say. She also didn't adopt a team. She, she went was to born there. It, molded and, by it. Yes, Ford by it. <laughs> <laughs> Texan through and through. Brad, now I know you're still grieving some here. So, yes. you know, tell us slow, you know, not slowly, quickly about your about your grief here. Oh, well, thanks for bringing that back up. Um, <laughs> it's slightly better now that baseball is back, but uh Michigan, my favorite team, uh my boyhood team, they uh <laughs> they were knocked team. out by UCLA. Uh, ironically, 
who's coached by the former coach for my alma mater while I was at school, mm. Nick Cronin, yes. And oh, uh, how the turntables. That was an atrocious game all around. <laughs> so, yes, I'm still grieving, and I do not appreciate your insensitivity <laughs> to this. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry about that. I mean, you say <laughs> cacklingly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can tell the sorrow in my voice. I guess, I guess you wouldn't have to be insensitive if they'd, I don't know, played better. That's it. Being a Michigan fan, I am used to disappointments. There is a a gif that is fantastic. It it um, it encapsulates being a Michigan fan and things like uh, you know basketball going up, being shot, and just rolling around the rim, falling out, having a bowl of cereal, and your spoon falls into the the bowl of cereal. Things like that. (laughs) Uh, Just getting so close and then being disappointed. (laughs) So That's yes. a real tragedy dis- of, of cereal. Yeah, this, yeah. It's thanks a, for it's horrible painting that picture for us. Yeah. That was that was really special. You're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad my my misery can uh, entertain you. I just like that you explained to our listeners a, a, a gif that you enjoy. Yeah, well, yeah, that I was mean, good. Am good I content. Just say this gif that shows disappointment. No, it, it, the best part of it is seeing the things that happen in the gif. You should tweet it out tomorrow. Um, wonderful. Okay. Uh, Isaiah, do you have any thoughts on March Madness? First of all, I thought we were going to talk about whether or not Pop-Tarts are ravioli. <laughs> and so, no, I don't have any comments on this because I've never watched a full game of basketball mm. because I'm not very sporty. Well, what's your comment, prepared comments for the Pop-Tart ravioli? Oh, that's a long, it's a long discussion that ends with all those arguments are wrong because mm-hmm. words mean whatever... The speakers of the language, you know, say they, whatever thought jumps into your head when you hear the word, that's how you determine the meaning. And so when you think of the word ravioli, when you think of the word Pop-Tart, nobody is ever thinking of the same thing without great effort to make a mm-hmm. dumb internet meme <laughs> that blossoms into these stupid conversations. I've yeah. got strong feelings about it. Much stronger than I do about basketball, you which I guess well, seems kind of cool. But. You might as well call macaroni and cheese cereal. Yeah. You got one thing swimming in another thing. Yeah. They're, yeah, it's cereal. <laughs> They're both grains. Oh, my. Well, on that note, folks, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter. Tweet at the Texan News. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas. Texas.